All right, well, enough of that. Let's get back to our places and let's get this show on the road. I'm really glad you guys could be here with us. What a joy it is for First Baptist Church to be able to host this annual conference. It really is a big honking deal for us. And like Craig said, whether this is your first time, you just wandered in, or you've been here a few times, uh, or whether you're an out-of-town guest. If you're an out-of-town guest, certainly you're our special guest, and we're particularly thankful that you made the time to come here and to participate with us. We got a long week ahead of us, and we're just getting started, so, you know, pace yourself. <laughs> um, I am tasked with just kicking off this conference, and, and as I thought about what I know you're going to be hearing in the evenings, in the morning sessions, listen, these guys have got the goods prepared, I'm just telling you, and you will do yourself a disservice if you miss out. Now, if you can't be here, man, get that material, but listen, they are going to cover all the bases on the most important things you need to understand about this subject of this conference, which is the local church. And so that presented a particular challenge for me to think about how am I going to kick this off? I mean, what am I going to say that they're going to say better later? Um, so I decided that what might be the most appropriate way to kick this off for you all is to just try and challenge you to consider why it's going to be so critically important for you to make the time to come back. And so with that, I want you to consider some scenarios. For example, how terrible would it be if people actually called on the name of the Lord, preached his word to others, saw lives changed and delivered, saw miraculous things happen in ministry, and yet somehow find out at the end of their lives all of that service was unacceptable to God? Well, you know, there actually are some people in that category. We find them in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 21 to 23, where it says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So this conference is about the subject of the local church. And it's a subject that a lot of you faithful churchgoers may probably feel like you already have a fair understanding of already. Let me just tell you what this conference is not designed to do. This conference is not designed to make you feel guilty about not coming to church as much as you should. And the conference is not also designed to make you realize just how awesome we are. <laughs> it's not designed for that either. But this week, what we will do is we're going to provide some in-depth Bible study on this particular topic and explore all the different implications and the cost of obeying what the Scriptures reveal and what the Scriptures require of us. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to help you to understand why it's going to be important for you to keep coming back and to hear what God has to say. And, and the reason is, well, it's the title I've given this sermon, the reason is, is because it is possible to serve God unacceptably. It is possible. And we'll see that as we get into this. What I want you to see this week, though, is that, and this morning as well, is just how you can avoid that. 
how you can avoid that. So the first thing you need to know, and this is your notes, is that Jesus Christ died for a body of believers corporately, which is entered into individually. Now that's an important distinction. Jesus Christ very clearly revealed in the scripture over and over again, the Bible clearly states, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, that Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. He gave his life for the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, he said that he gave his life for all. In 1 Thessalonians 5.10, it says that he gave his life for us. And in John 18.14, it says that he gave his life for the people. Those are all plural. He gave his life for us corporately. This is the overwhelming revelation of the scripture on this subject of for whom did Jesus Christ come and give his life? Now let me clarify, while certainly each individual is critically important to the Lord, there's no question about it, he gave his life so that many would be saved, that we would form a community of believers, and that we would work and live and worship and serve together in local churches. That's why he did it. Sometimes we like to hear it said that if you were the only person on earth, Jesus Christ still would have come and died for you. Well, that, you know, that may sell well while you're doing a gospel presentation. The truth of the matter is that's not the case. You're not the only person on earth. And Jesus Christ and he came and he gave his life so that there would be an entity which is called the church. That's what he gave his life for. And that's what you need to understand. You hear people complain and say things today like, I love the Lord. I just don't like the church. People today tend to trend towards doing things, as Frank Sinatra used to say, my way. <laughs> that philosophy, by the way, landed Frank Sinatra in hell. Everybody wants to freelance their personal skills in ministry without the accountability structure that is required by a biblical New Testament local church. That's what we want to do. So the question, is it possible to serve the Lord and have it be unacceptable to him? Well, the simple answer is yes. It absolutely is possible. And the Bible's full of examples and warnings for all of us. We're going to look at two specific ways that lead to your service being unacceptable to him. And, well, by understanding those, you can avoid them. And that's our goal. So let's just pray and then we'll get into our outline. So, Heavenly Father, we do come before you humbly and gratefully and ask you, Lord, that you would help us, your children, see how some people actually can and do serve you unacceptably. I, I pray that you would help us to see how to serve you acceptably and help us to actually do it so that we can please you. Because, Lord, we understand that, well, that's the reason why you created us for your pleasure and we desire to live in and for your pleasure and lord this thing of the church it's much more than just the name we give that building on the corner of the street this is something very very special and i pray that while we address this subject that may be well-worn ground for some of us you'd show us new things 
that will reignite that fire in our soul to make us want to do exactly and completely everything you ask of us. We ask that you'll do that for us. We thank you in advance. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's some things to be aware of, and the first thing we're going to look at is your first point in your outline. Sincerity is not enough. Sincerity is not enough. Listen, there's a lot of people in this world that are sincere. They're well-intending. They're even sacrificial, truthfully. They give to others. They genuinely care about other people. And, and listen, those are great qualities. I, I wish truly that there were more. Don't you wish there were more people that had those qualities in life? No question. But you have to understand that simply being sincere, it's not enough when it comes to ministry. It's not enough. God gave us his word so that he could describe for us not only what it is we're supposed to do, but how it is we're supposed to carry it out. You see, you can't just make up your, oh, you can, but you're advised not to just make up your own plan for ministry while at the same time you're ignoring God's revealed, clearly written plan. No matter how sincere you are, no matter how well-intending you are in your efforts, no matter how sacrificial you are, as it's been said, you can be sincere and at the same time be sincerely wrong. So the Old Testament is full of examples, and we're going to go through four specific examples together here in a second. But the Old Testament is full of examples of people that, well, I mean, as far as we know, I mean, how much can you judge a person's intentions by reading? But there's no reason for us to consider that they didn't necessarily have sincere good intentions in their life. It's full of stories of people like that who were faithfully serving and sacrificing in their own way. But in their own way meant that they were ignoring the distinct, explicit revelation of God and the clear commands that were given to them in their particular area of service. And as a result, ended, the, excuse me, ended their life unacceptable to God. The first thing we're going to look at is the idea that source matters. Source matters. This is going to make sense in just a second. We'll go to Leviticus chapter 10. And the story is two sons of Aaron. Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them, that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You just can envision how when that happened, Aaron was blown away when he saw this event happen and was just about to say something when Moses interrupts and he says, now wait a minute, remember what the Lord said, I'll be sanctified in them that come nigh me, Levitical priesthood, and I'll be glorified in them. And Aaron, knowing the mistake the boys made, said, okay. So these two sons of Aaron, Aaron is the high priest. They work in the tabernacle. They were given very specific, very clear directions from God on how to carry out their ministry. Okay? The coals that light the fire, that burn the incense, and the incense offering were to be taken 
from the altar, the brazen altar of sacrifice. That's where the fire was to be kindled from. Nadab and Abihu, they, they didn't do it that way. Why not? Did they just decide along the, along the way that, well, I mean, I mean, fire is fire. I mean, I got the incense right. I mean, what does it really matter where I get the coals from? Well, this is the point I want you to see. The ministry God prescribes has to come from the place God prescribes. The ministry that he prescribes, in this case, this incense ministry, if you will, has to be kindled from the place from which he says it must originate. We'll get to this in more detail before we're done. But what they did is they ignored and they bypassed the very source, the brazen altar, for their incense ministry, if you will. They're serving in the tabernacle in that way. And as a result, by ignoring the specific directives of God, they didn't sanctify him. They didn't set God apart as holy and special. They didn't glorify him in that, in his proper place. Oh, and because they're leaders, they, by extension, didn't sanctify and glorify the Lord in the hearts and the minds of all the people that they represent when they go before the Lord in this sacrifice. So, since sanctification is a form of separation, they didn't separate God to his proper place. Well, God separated them from their lives. He separated them from their lives. All that work that they put in was clearly unacceptable. It was done. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt that it was sincere, that they were well intending. They were offering a sacrifice, but they didn't take it from the right source. And the right source matters. The right source matters. Let's go to the next one. Obedience matters. Of course, you'd expect this one to be on the list. Obedience matters. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have the story of Samuel the prophet and King Saul of Israel. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, and infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. God had given Saul a position of leadership over God's people. He had a position of power. He had a position of influence as the king of Israel. He then gave him something to do. And when he gave him this particular task to do, you know that it was a test. It was a test to see if Saul's heart would be pure before the Lord and would he obey what the Lord has for him to obey. God does that in your life too. God gives you opportunities. He gives you ways that you can serve and stand for him and to lead and to guide and direct in whatever area of influence you have. And then, and then he puts something in front of you. It's a test. You have to know God is watching and wanting to see how you're going to respond. What will Saul do? Will he do what God said? What did God say? Kill them all. Take no prisoners. That's what he said. Kill them all. Take no prisoners. Well, let's see how that worked out. 
Back to 1 Samuel, start in verse number 7. Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, well, that they utterly destroyed. So Saul, kind of like Nadab and Abihu, did not really sanctify the Lord, did he? He decided that he was going to do it his way, didn't he? He was going to kill the ones that he decided were bad, and he was going to keep the ones that he decided were good. He, he basically said, um, you know, I mean, the word of the Lord is relative, isn't it? I mean, generally speaking, I'm keeping the general message. I mean, what difference does, I, I, have, I have a better idea. That's a good idea, Lord, but I, I got a better idea. Let me, let me help you out here. I'm not going to kill them all. I mean, these are perfectly good sheep. And so he didn't do exactly what God wanted him to do. Well, he might have thought it was a better idea, but certainly God did not think it was a better idea. We'll continue reading in verse number 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, notice this, this is just unbelievable. Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And, you know, you just got to appreciate Samuel. Samuel, Samuel's a dude, man. You got to read just a hint of sarcasm in this one. Samuel said, what meaneth then? The bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear. I have kept the commandment of the Lord. Huh. That's funny. I still hear animals. Last time I checked, we shouldn't have any of those. So Saul's going to reply. I mean, he's a man. He's going to have his excuses, right? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people, oh, the people, not me, the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, if we do it for the Lord, it's okay, right? But the rest, we've utterly destroyed them. So chill out, Samuel. We got this, man. Listen, don't kid yourself. Everybody that disobeys the Lord has a religious reason for it. Everybody's got a religious reason for it. Good intentions. Sincere. I mean, by the way, up to this point, I mean, he's doing okay, Saul is. He wanted a sacrifice to God. He came up with his way of doing it. But what Saul didn't understand, and what we need to understand is that partial obedience is complete disobedience. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. So James chapter 2 and verse number 10 reminds us that if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of all the law. See how that works? Partial obedience to the law is equivalent to total disobedience because you've broken the law in some part. Well, you're a lawbreaker. That's how it works. So let's go back to our text in 1 Samuel, down in verse number 19. Samuel is speaking. 
Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord? He directly contradicts him. You say you obeyed. Why do I hear all these sheep now? He's like, by the way, let me just, let me just clear this up for you, Saul. You have not obeyed. You absolutely have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. But didst fly upon the spoil, in other words, to keep, keep the good stuff for yourself, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord. Why did you do that? And Saul said unto Samuel, listen, this guy has now lost it. Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoils, sheep and oxen, chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God at Gilgal. What is your problem, Samuel? And Samuel said, well, let me tell you what my problem is. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And then he equates it for rebellion. What you've done is rebellion. It says the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. And he brings it home. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Saul's partial obedience is rebellion. It's stubbornness. And it's equated to witchcraft and idolatry. He, his complete rejecting of God's word, well, that caused God to reject him from his position of leadership. Because obedience matters. And Saul served the Lord in a position of leadership and power and influence over God's people. But he did it unacceptably. He did it unacceptably. Let's go to another example. The next one, substance matters. The substance, the very substance of what it is you're doing. Well, it, it really matters. Now we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 4 and we've got Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, 3, in the process of time it came that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. So what happened is, is that God prescribes that there would be a blood offering. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 says, without, without blood there can be no remission of sins. And so there had to be bloodshed. You say, well, Hebrews was written a long time after that. Yeah, I know. But when Adam sinned, right, what did God do? He tried to cover himself with fig leaves. That was a man-made, works-based religion. God said, no, that's not going to be good enough. I have to cover you with skins. And in order to cover him with skins, there had to have been bloodshed, right? And so there was blood, and that was the issue, that there had to have been blood shed, and Cain would have known that. And Cain brought, well, he brought fruit and veggies, he had a better idea. He thought to himself, well, I mean, my brother keeps the sheep. He'll bring what he does, and I keep the ground. I'll bring what I do. And, I mean, really, at the end of the day, what difference does it really matter? I mean, surely God will accept whatever I bring. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it sincerely. I, I'm doing it with a good intention. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it to offer unto the Lord. I mean, I could have kept them and ate them, but I'm giving them unto the Lord. I mean, 
I mean, these fruits that I'm bringing, I mean, they're for God. But, since you can't get blood out of a turnip, God said, nope, sorry, that's disobedience. It's not any good. It's not going to work. And God wants you to know, you can't arbitrarily replace what God prescribes. You can't do it. You're not allowed to make up your own cash equivalents. Specifically, especially after God has already spoken directly and clearly on a subject. So, for example, when the Great Commission clearly states that we are to go and we are to make disciples of all nations, and in the process of going and making disciples of all nations, we are to start local churches where the new disciples can go and grow, well, that can't just be switched out for your idea of the Great Commission saying, go and start orphanages and feed children or start schools or start... And by the way, those are great things to do. But it's not the Great Commission and you can't just switch it out on your own. You can't arbitrarily just replace what God specifically said must be done. Genesis 4, 5 finishes by saying, and Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell and well, you know the rest of the story. He killed his brother. But don't just read past that killing his brother thing because not just because Cain's a picture of the Antichrist and not just because Abel's a picture of Jesus Christ and not, not just because of these things, but practically speaking, Bible compromisers will always try and take down obedient Christians. Bible compromisers will always try and take you down when you are standing on the letter of the law. Take it to the bank every time. The substance, the very, the very substance of what you offer to the Lord, it matters. It matters. Letter D, methodology matters. This is the story of King David and the ark of God. And after some battles and Israel was in rebellion, the ark of God was taken by the Philistines and the Philistines had it for some time and David comes into power and David decides he's going to go and he's going to bring the ark back. We pick up in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and verse number 6. David went up in all Israel to Balah, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ohio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might and with singing, with harps, with psalteries, with timbrels, with cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came unto the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he had put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. You know this story. God clearly prescribed that the ark of the covenant was not to be touched with human hands. There was a specific group of Levites that were to carry the ark with staves that were rods that were run through rings that were built into the ark. And they would lift the ark by these staves and they would carry it by hand. And this is specifically laid out for them in the law and they should have known this. But what happened is, is that, well, the ark's been gone for a while and 
you know what, they kind of got used to the fact that the Lord hadn't been around and maybe they got lazy and maybe they just forgot or I don't know what it is. Maybe they hadn't been memorizing the scripture like they should have been. But whatever the case is, they, they just said, well, let's do what we got to do. And so he calls Uzzah and Ahio and well, if you do the Bible study, and I did it for you, so let me just tell you, they are the sons of Merari, and the sons of Merari are the sons of Aaron that come down the lineage that are the ones that were given the charge to carry the other furniture of the tabernacle and very specifically were granted to carry the other furniture of the tabernacle on carts. God gave them carts to carry out what they should carry out. But the sons of Merari were not the ones that were to carry the ark with the staves. Those were the sons of Kohath. In other words, they just kind of played fast and loose with what God had specifically prescribed. There's a certain method that you have to apply to carry out the service of the Lord. Now, these are sincere people. Once they got this show on the road and they got that ark on the cart and they started to head down the road, for a while it looked okay, didn't it? For a while they were doing just fine and man, did they have a worship time. Man, they were playing all those instruments and they're shouting to the Lord and they're jumping and hooting and hollering and they are having a time of praise and worship. Don't tell me they were ill-intended. These are sincere, well-intending brothers and sisters. They're excited in the presence of the Lord. The ark represents the very presence of God between the cherubim. And they're bringing it back home. But they put it on a cart. They put it on the cart. And they didn't sanctify the Lord to his proper place. And God killed him. God killed him. You know what that means to you today? Shortcuts in ministry are unacceptable. Shortcuts are unacceptable. You can't say, well, you know, the stave bearers aren't around, so well, let's, just, let's just do this thing. Let's just, I mean, it's good enough. No, it doesn't work that way. So today, what do we hear? We hear statements like, eh, don't wait around to be approved by your church. I mean, just go out yourself. There's plenty of work to be done. Haven't you heard the preacher say that we're in the last days? Don't you realize that time's a wasting? And listen, man, I've got skills. I could be using them for the Lord. No shortcuts. No shortcuts. Listen, don't waste four years in preparation in a Bible institute. I mean, you know plenty. You know more than those poor people in that country you might go to anyway. Just go do it. No shortcuts. I want you to notice where this all came down. They were doing fine for a while, but the Lord makes a point of pointing out specifically where they were when the oxen stumbled and the ark began to slide off the cart. And you know Uzzah, I mean Uzzah was like, oh no, God is falling down, let's help him. As odd as that statement sounds, you know he was trying to help. You know he was. And this other guy, Ohio, he's probably like, good thing I wasn't closer to it than he was. I mean, you know, he maybe would have done it too. Where were they? They were at this place called the threshing floor of Chidon. Threshing floor. Do you know what a threshing floor is? Oh, it's a place of separation. 
That's the place where they would thresh the wheat to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so God said, you know what, I'm just going to test them and see what chaff separates out from the wheat while they're transferring the ark on a cart. So he separated the wheat of holiness from the chaff of scriptural compromise. And Uzzah was separated from his life. Now, don't you know David and Israel, they got the message. Because we go on and we read in verses 12 and 13, David was afraid of God that day. Good, good call. <laughs> Saying, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me? What am I going to do now? So David brought not the ark home to himself to the city of David, but carried it. Okay. Got it. Figured it out. Get the sons of Kohath over here real quick. Bring those staves. They carried it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And by the way, the house of Obed-Edom was greatly blessed as a result for the time that the ark rested there. People often ask, isn't it good enough just to do something? I mean, if I'm sincere, certainly God understands and will allow it. Well, let me just clarify, God certainly understands. <laughs> that doesn't mean he allows it. Doesn't mean he approves of it. Let me just ask you a question, seriously. Why don't you just do it God's way? I mean, if you have the opportunity to do it the exact way God prescribes, why wouldn't you just do it that way? I mean, why is it that we have to say, you know, the Lord said this. Okay, I mean, I see. I see he said that. But, hey, I, I got an idea. How about we do something different? What is it about us that we feel like we always have to do that? God specifically said do it this way. I got an idea for you. Let's just do it that way. How about we just do it that way? Well, that's an old way. Yeah, but it works. And it's what God said. Oh, and it pleases him. And it's acceptable. And it'll give you rewards. Oh, could, we could just go on all day. No, let's just do it his way. Okay, how does all that come to pass? How do those things really happen? Well, the New Testament's going to shed some light on it for us. This is our second point today. And it's spiritualizing is not allowed. Spiritualizing is not allowed. Listen, there's a problem with people today who actually do read and study the Word of God. They don't just simply let God's Word speak for itself. They feel the need for some reason to do what God specifically said don't do, and that is to interpret it privately, which is unacceptable. They don't do it the proper way, which is by comparing Scripture with Scripture, so they end up rationalizing whatever it is God says. But see, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the New Testament has a vivid example of this. We have in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is giving to his son in the faith, Timothy, several charges to the ministry. Do this, do that, watch for this, watch for that, be careful of this, continue on. He, he gives them all these charges for the ministry. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19, he's, he's talking, he says to Timothy, holding faith and a good conscience which some, having put away concerning the faith, have made shipwreck, of whom, and he lists a couple of guys' names, is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he's telling Timothy, whatever you do, you need to hold strong your faith, and you need to hold strong a good conscience, because there's some guys out there who have blown it. 
and they haven't held the faith, and they haven't held a good conscience, and they have made shipwreck of their lives. God calls it blasphemy. Let's learn a little bit more about these guys. You flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We see it repeated starting in verse 17. And he's talking about people arguing about stuff. And he says, And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus, oh, there he is, and another guy now he's got into it, Philetus. And he explains what they did, who concerning the truth have erred, saying, here's their error, the resurrection is past already. And they overthrow the faith of some. You see, that's what shipwreck really is. When the ship wrecks, it's not just you that goes down. A whole bunch of people go down with you. They have overthrown the faith of other people by spiritualizing a teaching on the resurrection that was meant to be literal and physical. They were all millennialists. They were all millennialists. And when you do that, well, you actually don't have a clear conscience before the Lord. It says for these guys in 1 Timothy 1.19 that they violated their own conscience. They violated their own faith in what God said. You see, you got to realize God placed that little thing, that inner voice in you, that conscience is in you. It's a gift of God so that you would just know that the right thing to do is just believe what God said. That's what your conscience will tell you to do. Just believe what he says. God always says what he means, and he always means what he says. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. If in my Father's house were many rooms, I would have said it that way. If in my Father's house was one big mansion, and you get a tent out in the courtyard, I'd have told you that way. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't that way, I'd have told you the way it was. He's telling us the way it is because he intends for us to understand it. So, as a result, letter A, you need to get this. God gave us the exact words he wants us to have. You know that. You know that. God gave us the exact words he expects us to have. Your Bible in English is written at about a fifth grade reading level. You can get it. But people reject the clear facts of the Scripture. I'm going to remind you of some of them. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. Amen? He's a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. That would be unacceptable, wouldn't you say? Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The words, not the word, general message. The words, the specific Every single exact individual word, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, the words, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them, the words, from this generation forever. God gave us the exact words he wants us to have. That's why at the very end of the Gospel of John, John 21, 25, he ends it this way. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. If God needed to give you a comprehensive account of every single thing that had to do with Jesus Christ's life, the Word of God, by the way, is the very soul of the Godhead. It's not just a recording of the history of actions 
of Jesus. It's his thoughts. It's his mind. He's eternal. The world itself couldn't possibly contain all the volumes. What does that mean? That means when he wrote down the words for you in one volume, he chose the exact words you need to have. He gave them to you on purpose. He gave them to you for a reason. So, when Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 8 says Jesus and not Joshua, it says it for a reason. When Acts chapter 12 and verse number 4 says Easter and not Passover, it says it for a reason. When Isaiah 14 and verse number 12 calls Lucifer Lucifer and not the morning star, it does that for a reason. In Luke chapter 2 and verse number 33, when it says Joseph and his mother, it does it for a reason. It's not his father and his mother. And 1 John 5, 7, which relates to us very clearly the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, it's actually in your Bibles. They actually exist. And to all those things, we all say amen. So, when God uses the word, here we go, church, <laughs> he does it on purpose. He does it for a reason. So Matthew 16, 18, Jesus Christ will build his church, not his ministry team. Acts 2, 47, the Lord added to the church, not to the Bible study group. Acts 20, 17 and 18, there are elders in a church which are to feed the church of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, or any of the church age epistles are written to the church of God, not outreach organizations. Ephesians 1.22, Jesus is the head over the church, not humanitarian organizations. Ephesians 3.10, God's manifold wisdom is known by the church, not Bible colleges. Ephesians 3.21, God is glorified in the church, not in splinter groups. Colossians 1.24, Christ's body is the church, not cancerous cells. 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, not higher education. So at the very end of your entire Bible, Revelation 22 and verse 16, all the revelation of God is sent to be testified in the churches, in the churches. When Jesus gave his great commission after his resurrection and 40 days with the disciples before his ascension into heaven, to whom did he give it? Well, you guys know that. You would say the 11 disciples that were then called apostles. Yeah, but who are they anyway? Who are these apostles? They're the foundation of the church. That's who they are, Ephesians 2. This is very specific language that God uses. He chooses words carefully, and he chooses them on purpose. And in none of these cases, none, exactly zero, does God choose to identify all of those attributes, all of that purpose, all of that privilege to focus on a Bible study, a school, an independent organization, a specialty ministry, an orphanage, a humanitarian relief organization, etc., 
etc., etc. He said all of that about the church. He said all of that about the church. Oh, I can hear him. The objections are rolling in. I can hear him already. The people are saying, wait, how simplistic, pastor. I can't believe that you don't even understand that when the Lord uses that word church, don't you know that what he really means is, wait a minute, what did you just say? The Lord said something, but what he really means, that's something different? Is that, is that what you're proposing? Are you proposing that he means something different than what he said? I'm just checking. The objections roll in. What he really means is, all the people who have ever been born again since the resurrection to the rapture. That's the church. Don't give me this local church thing. A lot of weird people in a lot of weird churches. But not in the church. Okay, great. Congratulations. Good job. Then you need to understand letter B. Because letter B is this. The church is both universal and local. You need to understand that. And people don't understand that. The church is both, the word church is used in two contexts. Universal church is not a term that's in the Bible, but we use it to represent all born-again believers of all times that make up the one true church of Jesus Christ that is currently assembled in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is, friends, opposers, (laughs) a legitimate usage of the word church in about 20% of all the usages of the word church. About 20% of the time it refers to this in context. But a local church, a local church now, which are made up of born-again, baptized believers that assemble together in a particular location, here and now, with God-ordained, qualified leaders, observing the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, carrying out the commission to reach the world with the gospel in this dispensation. This is also a legitimate usage of the word church and is used about 80% of the time that the word church is used. You see, they both exist in Scripture. And the universal application, well, it is certainly at some level a spiritualized application, if you will, of the word church, but it is not to the exclusion of the current, literal, physical application of a local New Testament church of living, breathing human beings. You see, one is a picture of the other. Our local New Testament church is a picture of the ultimate, eternal, one church of Jesus Christ. Now, granted, an imperfect picture. Uh, There are no unbelievers making it into that one. Occasionally, some of y'all might sneak through the door and make it, not really be saved and become a member of our church or somebody's church. It happens. We try to, you know, ask you enough questions to feel confident that you know what you're talking about. You understand what salvation really is. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's an imperfect picture. But can I tell you something? It's a much better picture than some man-made, independently dreamed-up structure of ministry that's not a church. 
You see, Hebrews chapter 8, in the first five verses, talks about the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. It's up in the heavens. And then it refers to the earthly tabernacle, the one of Moses in the wilderness. And it calls that earthly tabernacle, the literal physical application, a shadow of the true. And when God gave Moses the instruction to build the earthly tabernacle, he gave him the instruction after the pattern that was shown him of the heavenly. So that earthly tabernacle didn't really matter then, did it? Oh, wait a minute. People died if they didn't do that earthly one right. Remember that? People lost their lives. You, you know God took that earthly tabernacle very, very, very seriously. But it's just a shadow. It's just a picture. Because there is a true tabernacle in heaven, and there is a literal earthly physical manifestation that is supposed to be a carbon copy of it so that we can all see it and we can all practice and learn and grow to eventually know how to be able to function when we go up into the heavenlies. Because when we go into the kingdom and we go into the heavenlies and we're operating in a spiritual realm only, God says, you should already have a handle on what this is going to look like because you've been serving me in the shadow of it down here. And that's exactly what God did with the church. Because there is legitimately a true, heavenly, spiritual church. But there's also a shadow of it. There's also a shadow of it, a literal, physical manifestation called the local church. And it's very, very important. I mean, what do you suppose the biblical structure God's given us to learn how to rule and reign with him in eternity in the universal church is going to look like anyway? It's going to look like a local church. You have to, you get the answer by going to the specific, exact words that God chose to use to teach you. Church. Churches. That's where you go. And if you allow yourself to do what the promoters of these independent ministries do, and that's to exclusively spiritualize the term church, well, then you're going to do what they do. You're going to take liberties. And you're going to make up your own plans for serving the Lord. And I'm just here to tell you, spiritualizing is not allowed. It's not allowed. Now I want to finish with this, Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. That means that there's going to be some people who are going to be building for God. Without God. <laughs> They're going to be building. They're going to be working to build something for the Lord, but really the Lord's not in it. It's unacceptable. It's a waste of their time, actually. Some people think they have a better idea. They're impatient. They can't wait for it to play out, so they take it into their own hands. They can't just seem to let the Lord build his house the way he prescribes. They just can't seem to let that happen. So what do we see? We see people start their own churches. Without being birthed from an existing church as a result of a healthy relationship. You see, what they're doing is they're trying to force a situation on the Lord and on his church that God never prescribed. You know how God uses that word forcing someone 
in the Bible? Well, sometimes it's used kind of like a rape. And we're talking about the bride of Jesus Christ. These people, well, they ordain themselves or they ordain each other. I'll ordain you and then you ordain me back. <laughs> Just to say that they're legitimate, they invent organizations for the glory of God. Rather than just live organically in the only organism that Jesus Christ ever established, the church, they deny the biblical need for the qualifications of leadership. You see, they don't have a church gathering. What they do rather is, well, we just have weekly meetings. And they don't have pastors, they just have staff. And, and they don't have people who have to be qualified to stand before the people and be proven and not novices because they're not really going to preach anyway. They're just going to share. And they all got their terms and their language that they use to somehow try and get around and slither their way through the rules, see? Deny the biblical need for qualifications of leadership. They choose to target their outreach only to their favorite demographic. Well, isn't that handy? You know, all we do is reach out to college students. Well, that must be nice. Uh, just let everybody else go to hell, I guess. I mean, people, you know, I, I wrestled with this when I started our ministry in Albania. You know, we're all alone. We're getting started. And, and people were asking me, you know, who, who's your target audience? Well, I think Mark 16 says go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature I think that's our target audience. I think our target audience is every creature. I, I, well, I, you know, well, uh, we only do children. Oh, well, I mean, well, bless your heart. I mean, who doesn't like a kid? I mean, I'd like to sit under a palm tree and weave those bracelets all day too, but I mean, there's real work to be done. I mean, that's a fun time for a summer camp, but I mean, come on. And here's what they do. They are forced to do it. They ignore the ordinances. They have to. They're not a church. You know what an ordinance is, don't you? It's something God orders. <laughs> I don't know how they got lost on them. That's not how it's done, y'all. It is possible to actually be involved in serving the Lord, maybe even sincerely, sacrificially, but have it be unacceptable to him. It's kind of like the Christian man who spent his entire life climbing the ladder of ministry success only to reach the top and realize that the ladder was leaning on the wrong building. You see, the source of biblical ministry is the local church. It's not yourself. Like begets like. Churches start churches. I don't care what you think. God pays close attention to your obedience to his specific commands. Will you do all of them? Or just some of them. Because if you don't do all of them, well then you're really not hot or cold, are you? You're just kind of lukewarm. The substance of your ministry has to target establishing local churches and the methodology has to be biblical. You can't take shortcuts. But we're in a big mess here in Laodicea. Laodicea is the church that says, I'm going to do it my way. They're, in fact, they're having such a good time being rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. And they are putting it on. I mean, we're churches doing so good. We have mega churches. And we got so much money, man. We got the laser light shows and we got the whole deal going on. And they don't even realize Jesus is locked outside. 
You think that's acceptable? You know what God says about that church? You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's what he says. There's some people serving God. It's not acceptable. I'm sorry. It's just not. And some of this stuff is a review for some of you people. And some of this stuff may not be. But I'll tell you what my desire is for you. That you recognize how critically important this otherwise simple subject really is. And you come back. And if you don't already know how to dot all the I's and cross all the T's on this doctrinal subject of the local church, come back and learn. Because there's a lot better stuff yet to come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are humbled before you. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And our God is a consuming fire. And Lord, you are loving and kind and merciful and forgiving, and we're so thankful for that, but you're also holy and just and righteous. And your love is offered freely, but yet your holiness has demands. So I pray, Lord Jesus, for everyone here today that however you have spoken to each and every one, that they would do business with you right now. If they would assess their own heart and life and say, man, I, I think some of that's true of me. I didn't mean it to be that way. Well, of course not. They're sincere. But I just didn't ever really put it together that way. Lord, I, I pray that if there's a need for genuine biblical repentance that they would do it right now. And I pray, Lord, that as we go forward studying tonight and tomorrow and the days that come, that you will open our eyes of understanding, that we would see and, and clarify completely the vision that you have for us serving you in local churches that are biblical, local churches, carrying out the ordinances and the commands and commissions. Lord, all we can do is what we know, and we're here to learn to be able to apply it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand up with me.